I grew up watching my mom and my dad give their money away. They supported our church first, and then missionaries, and then people in need as they encountered them. My dad had a company. He uh, built churches around New York State, built a school, he built homes. But I always knew when my dad did not have work lined up. Because underneath the sink was a box of powdered milk. And when, I, when dad did not have work lined up, that powdered milk would come up to the top of the counter. That was a clue for our whole family of eight that things were going to be tightening up. But you know what I discovered? That even when things got a little bit more tight financially, my parents continued to give. They continued to trust God. I asked my dad one time, he died in 1998. I asked my dad one time, I said, Dad, you know, I don't know anything about this, but do you have a retirement account? Have you saved for retirement? He was still working at the time, and he said to me, no, we don't. And I said, what do you mean you don't? I thought everybody was supposed to have a retirement savings. He goes, you know, we... Your mom and I decided that we were going to give as much as we can away and just trust the Lord for our retirement. That's what they did. And when my dad died, then it was just my mom, and she lived on her teacher's pension and Social Security for years. She died at age 89. My dad died at age 74. And I remember giving my mom some terrible advice. I said to her, Mom, are you still giving at the level that you and Dad were giving when he was alive? And she said, yes. I said, you know, I think God's okay if you want to lower that giving. Thankfully, she did not listen to me. She kept giving. I remember when she was around 80 years old, my mom, younger, around 30-something, got hit by a train. True story. You can actually find it on the Internet. She got hit by a train of all trains called the Lehigh Valley Express up in New York, drove her car 160 feet down the tracks, messed up her knees, her back all of her life, and destroyed the nerves in her teeth. So from a young lady, she had dentures, and she was always, always self-conscious about it. Around 80 years old, my mom's dentures broke, and she told me about it. I said, Mom, really, I think God would be okay. Give less to the church and to the missionaries and get your dentures. She wouldn't even go out of the house. She was so self-conscious because when she talked, her dentures would sometimes drop down. And again, she ignored me. My now some people are gonna say, that's so sad that my mom couldn't even get her dentures fixed because she was giving so much money away. I don't think it's sad at all. I think she's a hero of the faith. She is one of God's generous givers. And we're going to talk about generous giving over the next six weeks. And I'm going to help you understand why we're doing this and what the aim of this sermon series is. But first, let's stand and let's read our passage from, from Malachi chapter 3. We're going to read verses 6 through 12, Malachi chapter 3. And here's what it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, 
How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby let me put, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. Well, I've got two points for you. I'm going to talk about the condition of God's people in Malachi. We're going to bring it into our own condition. And then we're going to see the challenge for God's people back then as well as today. First, the condition of God's people. Now, go back if you would. Again, we are a uh, Bible preaching church. We you know, a lot of churches, they read the passage, and then almost literally the pastor closes the Bible and waxes eloquent on stories and narratives. Let's let the text breathe. Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Well, Malachi is a prophet. He's the last prophet of the Old Covenant. And he's speaking to God's people who are not in good spiritual condition at all. In fact, this entire book is a legal drama. There are seven legal arguments between God, the prosecuting attorney, and his people, the defense attorney. And they go back and forth, back and forth throughout these six disputes. Israel, their love had grown cold. They did not love God any longer. Therefore, their worship was corrupt. Don't think just their singing portion of their church services. That's not really what worship means. It means they're coming to the temple. They're honoring the high holy days. They're sacrificing. All of that was corrupt. They're marrying non-believers. And because they're marrying non-believers, and this is as true today as it is back, was back then, the divorce rate was sky high. They would divorce for any and every reason. There's a reason, by the way, if you're not married, that God says there is no fellowship between light and darkness. Do not let a Christian be yoked to an unbeliever. That is a Principle, I'm telling you, you do not want to disregard. It will bear effects in your marriage. Well, their faith was corrupt. They're like a lot of people that go to church today. They had no spiritual vitality. Their love for God was not there. They had no joy. In fact, there's very little distinction between the people in the book of Malachi and the nations all around them. And you get to chapter 3 and the 5th of six disputes breaks out with God. And God begins this way, and it's a good thing that he did. Look at verse six. For the Lord, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You know what that means? It means the God of mercy, a hundred years before, 
was the God of mercy that day. He is the God of every day's mercy. And it's a good thing because he says, because of my mercy, I'm not going to wipe you out. I'm not going to obliterate you. But he called them, look at it, he called them, O children of Jacob. Normally, he calls them children of Israel. By this point in the story of the Old Testament, it's almost always children of Israel. Here he calls them children of Jacob. Why? Well, think back to Jacob for a moment. Jacob... Before God changed his name and God changed his heart, before God changed him, Jacob was a thief. He was a swindler. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. He stole his brother's birthright because he had vain intentions. So God says, will you, children of Jacob, rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are robbing me and not just a few of you. He says, the whole nation of you. Now let me give you a tip and trick for how to attend church properly. It's as true for me when I'm not preaching as it is for you when you're sitting under preaching. God's word is living and active. It's the only book in the universe it is. Part of what that means is it has the power to customize its voice to your need. It adapts. Doesn't change the truth. That's timeless. God is infallible. He does not change. But his voice will speak to one of you differently than it will speak to another of you. It's living and active, and it will go all the way down into our hearts, and it works like an x-ray machine. Let me think for a moment. You go to a doctor, and they take you to the the hospital, and they take x-rays. You hear the machine click, and nowadays it puts it up on a computer readout, and then the doctor gets that screen display and sits down and has a consult with what's going on and here's the treatment plan. You know it really is the same way. Right now, God, listen, this is what's happening. God is draping his lead blankets of grace over your heart. He is taking pictures of what's in your heart. Maybe you don't even see it. Maybe I don't even see what's in mine. And he is about to show you what's in there and he's going to have a consult by his spirit and the spirit of God's going to sit down with you and say, here's what's going wrong in your life, and here's how you correct it. That's happening right now. It's always happening when you sit under preaching that is gospel preaching. And here's what you need to remember. Sin is always a deadly condition. Sin is always a deadly Condition. So right now, God's taking pictures. He's about to show you what that is, what those pictures are yielding through the voice of the Holy Spirit into each one of us. So let me help you go down into your heart. Here's a question I invite you to be bold and courageous to answer it. You don't have to publicly answer this. It's just between you and God. What percentage of your monies did you give away last year? Now, you know, if you're an adult, you know what's in your savings or close to it. You know what's probably in your checking. You certainly know what stocks and investments you have, and you know what's in your IRA. You know. 
And you're about to get W-2 forms or other legal documents that's gonna tell you what you gave away last year. So you're about to see it in full revealing color. What percentage of your monies did you give away last year? Do you know that one of the clearest barometers of your love for God will be seen in your attitude toward your money and your possessions. It is crystal clear. Those who identify as Christians in the United States have a combined 2.5 trillion income. If you take all the people that say they're Christians in our country, their income totals 2.5 trillion, yet only 9% of them tithe any of it. And the total of what they give is 2.5% of their income to charitable causes. It's really not much more than non-believers who give 1% to 2% of their income away to charity each year. But let's dial that in a little bit because that takes mainline Christians or anybody that says they're a Christian. Let's dial it into evangelical Christians, those who are committed, churches that are committed to the proclamation and the living by the power of the gospel. Just take evangelical Christians in the U.S. 27.5% of evangelical Christians tithe. And what they tithe is 3 to 4% of their money. Christian giving in 1921 was 3.5% of your money yearly. Forward to the year 2000, it is now disposable wealth has increased 600%. In the year 2000, that percentage of money that they gave, Christians gave, went down to 2.5%. In the average church, 5% of generous Christians give 59% of what is collected every week. Here's the most surprising thing. Of the lower, middle, and upper classes in our country, the group or the class that gives the least, listen, is the middle class. The poor and the rich significantly give more proportionately to their income. So let me ask you again, what percentage of your monies do you give away each year? Well, I think I know what somebody is probably thinking here, and maybe not just a few. You mean for six weeks, you're going to try to give us, get us to give more money to the church? Do you know that's not the aim of this series called Generous Hearts, Open Hands? That's not even close to the aim. It might happen, but that's not my goal. My goal in my own life and in your life, the people that come and sit under my preaching, is that you have an increase of generosity in your hearts and your hands open to the poor all around you because they're everywhere. And for six weeks, we are going to sit under the gospel and watch how it transforms us 
to open our hands. Are we robbing God? Well, that's an important question to ask. And if, it, if we are, it requires one response. Look what God says in verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That just means repent. But what does it mean to repent? It means more than just do a 180. That's the pop definition of it. Here's the gospel definition. It's the realization that in your sin, you didn't just break a command of God or a rule of God. You broke the heart of God. And that alone moves you to confess that to God and turn away from your sin. So it's more than just breaking a rule of God. It's the realization you have broken God's heart. He is grieving over your actions. And it moves you to turn away from that sin. Closing our hands, gripping our possessions and our money. Here's what it's shouting to God. It's shouting to God that we love this world more than we love him. We trust money more than we trust him. That's what a closed hand is shouting to God. And a closed hand is a frugal hand. That's the, per that's the condition of the people of God in Malachi's day. It's not much different than in our own day. So let's look at the challenge for God's people, point number two, and my final point. Israel in the days of Malachi were a vassal nation under Persia. Persia is the superpower of the world. They conquered Israel. They allowed Israel to exist, but Israel had to send in their taxes. They had to farm the land and send the produce to Persia. And the Persian taxes were incredibly heavy. And so the people began to think, well, it's okay. God's going to be all right. He knows how difficult it is. He knows the inflation rate. He knows how taxed we are. We sat down and we computed our taxes. Surely God's okay. We'll lower our giving to him because we've got to give forcibly to Persia. So many of them gave the least that they could and gave the poorest of what they had. They selected lambs that were blind or diseased or infected or crippled. And they said, well, we don't want these anyways. We don't want to breed them. We'll give that as our worship to the Lord. And they didn't have an IRS then. Nobody in the Levitical priesthood could calculate what each person earned. So the people underreported. And the result was that the storehouse in the temple was empty. And that was cataclysmic. God says to them, verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. What does tithe mean? Well, most of us know it means tenth. And here God commands the full 10% to be brought to him. We see there was a tithe law. That's the tithe law. Bring the tenth to God. Why did it exist? Listen, it's the same reason that every law of God exists. is to teach his people to trust him. It's to measure the people's love for him. Haven't you ever wondered, friends, why did God even make a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and put it in their midst? Why did he do that? It was a test. It was always meant to be a test. Do you love me 
more than the false promise of that tree? Do you trust me more than your own efforts to make yourself like God? It was always a test. Every law of God is a test. And if you keep it, you will be reaping blessings. And if you will not keep it, you will be reaping cursings. But there was a tithe law. And it taught God's people to love and trust him and not love and trust the things of the world. And there were three levels to it. First, there's an annual yearly tithe. Do you know what that was for, friends? That was collected and given for the Levitical priests. You see, there were thousands of Levitical priests. They went in every town. They cared for the widows. They counseled the orphans. They loved people who were injured. They took care of people. But they were forbidden for gainful employment. You couldn't go get jobs. You couldn't own your own land. You can't farm your own produce. They had to live entirely on the gifts of the people of God. That was every year's tithe. But every three years, there was another tithe taken, and all the money for that tithe, all of the contributions, went for the widows, the orphans, and the immigrants. People who are sojourning through Israel, they don't have land, they don't have crops, they fall on bad times. That money's for the immigrants, for the orphans, for the widows. In the Old Testament, the Israelites would bring a portion of their grain, a tenth of their grain, a tenth of their wine, the first fruits, the first batch of your wine, the first cut of your grain, the best of the best. They would bring their honey, their fruit, their livestock, and they would bring it to the temple and they would offer it. And it would go into the storehouse of God and it would be distributed, listen, to the poor and to the needy. Well, that's two of the three. The third tithe were voluntary offerings. These were free will love gifts. They were expressions of the people's gratitude for how much their God has given to them. See, giving the tithe in Israel was a recognition that everything they had actually belonged to God. It was all his, which is why he says in Haggai, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Do you know what God is saying there? Maybe somebody here is picturing the, the trilogy, The Hobbit, and you're thinking of Smog the dragon sitting in his caverns over top vast hordes of gold and not wanting anybody to touch it. God doesn't need gold. It's already his. God does not come out of the holy place or the holy of holies and grab a spare lamb for a snack. God does not take the grain and go back into the holy of holies and bake it into bread for his food. He doesn't drink our wine. This is not for God to enjoy. This is a test. Do you love God? Do you trust God? Because this is going to go for the people who are in need. See, everything you have, everything, possessions, money, home, health, abilities, everything belongs to God who has given them to you for his purposes. Friends, we own nothing. We're just holders. We're conduits. 
We're in a complete and constant state of stewarding what rightfully belongs to God. The aim of this series is to turn our ownership thinking into stewardship living. God is gracious to us. He is generous to us. Why? So that we could be generous to others. Look at what Deuteronomy 15 says. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. You shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You know, well, who are the poor? That's really actually pretty important to ask. You know, there's two kinds of poor people in the Old Testament. There are those who become circumstantially poor. They're entirely agrarian, almost all of them. They're farmers. And if the locusts devour your fields, you have nothing. If a cow steps on your leg and breaks it, you can't work. If the rain does not come, your crops won't grow. You could be rich one year and desperately poor the next. If an army comes in and they steal everything you own and then they salt your fields, which they would do so that it renders the land infertile, what are you going to do then? Your inheritance was your land. You have nothing left. You're poor. That's circumstantial poverty. But there's a whole other type of poverty. It's the person in Proverbs who lays on their bed all day and tosses and turns like a door opens and closes on its hinges. They will not work. It's the person in Thessalonians who could work but doesn't want to work. Therefore, the apostle Paul says, let them not eat. You see, there are the irresponsible poor and there are the circumstantial poor. If anyone among your brothers should become circumstantially poor in any of your towns within your land, you don't harden your heart, you open your hand. The woman in Proverbs 31, who is our example, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. But here's the truth. We're not living in the old covenant. We're not in the Old Testament days. We're in the new covenant. We're under the covenant, not of law, but of grace. And God's grace always works from the inside out. You see, his law always worked from the outside in. This is what you are to do. And if you delight in the Lord, you will do it. The New Testament of grace says you don't want to do what God wants. The gospel comes into your heart and changes your heart so you have the want to, to do what you ought to. And it produces a willingness and a gladness to give generosity, generously. And therefore, the law of tithe is never reaffirmed in the New Testament. Never. We're not under the law of the tenth. You aren't being commanded to bring 10% of everything you own to the church. Here's what the law of grace does. It utterly persuades you, gladly, that not 10% belongs to the Lord. 100% belongs to the Lord. It's all his. Do you know what most of us do? You have a percentage that you give to the church or larger to the kingdom of God. And that's God's. 
but the rest of everything you have is yours to do what you want. That is not the law of grace of generosity. Everything belongs to the Lord. The gospel of Jesus is the only power that can work on our hearts and willingly open our hands. A closed hand is an untrusting, unloving heart, and there's no faster way to deal with that idol of a love of money than repenting, trusting, and giving generously. So God challenges Israel. Look what he says in verse 10. Put me to the test. He never says that anywhere else. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Church, God gives you money and possessions. Listen, to meet your needs and the needs of those who depend on you and to further the work of God in his kingdom. That's why he gives us things. It's to satisfy us. It's to give us what we need to live and those who are depending on us and to further the work of the gospel in the kingdom. The storehouse of chapter 3, verse 10, that's where all the monies, that's where all the contribution of, of Israel were put. And that was where they were drawn from to help the widows and the orphans and the Levitical priests and the immigrants. And if his people will be generous, here's the promise of Deuteronomy 15. There will be no circumstantially poor among you for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. Do you realize that if we gave generously in this church there would be no circumstantially poor person here. None. Do you know that if 100 million Christians only, 100 million Christians gave only $50 a year, it would wipe out worldwide preventable diseases among children? That's a fact. By trusting God, generosity can stamp out true poverty. And what we're going to discover in this series is that God promises to bless his generous people. Why? Not like the false promise of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. There they tell you, if you give, God will give even more to you so you could get more things in this world. That's not the gospel. But you'll see, the gospel says a promise. If you give generously, as the Lord directs, cheerfully, voluntarily, freely, the Lord will give even more to you. Do you know why? Because he now knows you will give even more to other people in need. You'll see that in this series. And it all begins with the gospel doing a radical work and changing our hearts. The monies and the possessions that God has given to us are not just for us. They are for others as well. Everything in your hand, all of your possessions, all of your money. It was placed there by God. His name is stamped on it. He reserves the right to redirect it wherever he wants it to go. But look at verse 9. If you close your hand possessively over it, you are cursed with a curse 
for you are robbing me. Remember my mom with her dentures? You want to hear the rest of that story? It's pretty, pretty encouraging, actually. My mom rejected my advice, thankfully, and continued to give at a, an incredible level. She drove terrible vehicles. They broke down about every other week. Thankfully, my brother is a mechanic right there in town, so he kept fixing it. She didn't have nice furniture. Her house was in such a state of disrepair. My dad built it many, many years before in 1968. But my mom continued to give. And you know what? As soon as, shortly after, in fact, I mentioned that in a sermon I did about eight years ago. No, I guess it had to be about 10 years ago. And um, a dentist in our church called me. Said, how can I find a way to meet with your mom? I want to make her some dentures. Before I could even tell my mom that, she called me and told me, you know what, this is, this is incredible. Somebody who is a dentist in New York heard about my dentures and called me and said, I'm going to give you free dentures. Come into my office next week and we're going to get you fitted for them. You cannot ever outgive God. You cannot ever outgive God. And God says, I dare you to try. Test me in this. It's that giving and generous God that we're about to worship. So the people that are coming to hand out the elements, if you could come down now, we're going to take the Lord's table. This is for believers only. If you're not yet a believer, if you've not yet put your faith in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, please let the tray pass you. Let this be a motivation to put your faith in Jesus for your salvation. But if you are a believer, we invite you to participate in this, in the Lord's table. And I want to encourage you to think for a moment what's going to happen over the next 10 minutes. Why do we do the Lord's Supper? Is this just a benign static ordinance that Jesus commanded us. Can everybody look at me for a moment? I know some of you are pulling cups out of the tray, but the rest of you look at me for a moment if you would. There is power in what we are about to do. There is great power, and that power is the transformation of grace. When you approach this by faith and remember Jesus and his death, there will be a transformation that happens in you. And what I want to focus on for a moment is this. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be closing his hand over. He opened his hand and let it go and was born as a baby. 
He limited his deity. He never changed. He was fully God, fully man. But his prerogative to exercise his divine power, he yielded and lived by the will of his Father and in the power of the Spirit. He let go for us. And the greatest demonstration of that rich, yielding poverty of Christ, he had no place to, to lay his head. He had no home. He had no career. He had no side gig. Do you know how he was supported in his ministry? Luke 8 says the women in Herod's, in Herod's household supported him. A group of women, they didn't make a lot of money, but they amassed their money and they gave it to the kingdom of God and gave it to the person of the kingdom, the king of all kings, so that he would have the money to do his ministry. God was dependent on a group of women, though he was rich. Because of his grace, he let it go, and he became poor. Listen, can I ask you a question? Has your generosity made you poor? Have you had to forfeit vacations and cars and homes because you can't afford it, because you're giving so much away? If you are, that's gospel generosity. And if you're not, you've yet begun. Can you take that bottom cup? And it points to the body of Jesus that he gave so willingly so that we could be saved, forgiven of our sins, and have life. Let's eat to that. of our hearts and if we have listened to the Spirit of God telling us what's wrong and what the treatment plan is if we have listened by faith during this last 35 minutes and then approach the table humbly you will feel a growing conviction and desire to give more than you have ever given before to the needy Thank you for you, Father, who loved us so much that you gave 
There's that generosity. You gave your only son that whoever believes in you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you for the spirit of God who has given generously, lavishly upon every Christian spiritual gifts and talents and abilities so that we could do the work of the kingdom of Jesus. Lord, make us generous. Give us the desire to be more generous than we ever have. May we give what we have as you direct. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.